morning. Please join me for the reading of God's Word. Our text today is John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. You can find it in your pew Bibles, and I encourage you to do so, to read along and see for yourselves the Word of God, which is for you, on page 1065. This is the word of the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, this man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out And find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have others, other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not 
the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you might know that I am an identical twin. I have another person out there in the world who looks a lot like this. People, especially in high school, had a hard time telling us apart. Only a few really knew the trick to doing so, right? You guys want to learn the trick today? The trick is, if you look closely and you have an eye for detail, because it's subtle, if you look closely, you'll notice that uh, I'm the handsome one. (laughs) I'm joking. He and I make those jokes all the time. And I don't, I don't mention him this morning because he and I look alike. I mention him because he and I have a depth and a knowledge and an intimacy and a familiarity with each other that I don't really have with anyone else. Some friends come close, but Josiah knows me best. Maybe it's because for 16 years, Josiah and I grew up together. We were always recognized together. We shared the same nickname. No one could tell us apart, so we are always just called Twinny. Hey, Twinny, what's up? We shared a room together. We shared clothes together. We shared our first car together. We shared homework together. I know Josiah deeply, and he knows me deeply. And we've often been asked, jokingly, by people who find out that we're twins, we get asked, Do you guys have, you know, uh, telepathy? Can you read each other's minds? And despite having a whole repertoire, a whole storage house of jokes about being a twin, I never joke about this thing. I never joke about it. I always answer it the same way and rather seriously. I say, Joe and I don't read each other's minds. We don't read each other's minds. But the thing about Joe and I is we know each other so well that I can tell you, if faced with a problem, I can tell you how Joe would answer it and why. And he can do the same for me. We may look at situations differently, but we know the other so intimately that we know how they would answer it. He and I have often talked that if one of us were to die, it would be a greater loss to the one who lived for they'd have to live the rest of their life with a significant part of them missing. Josiah and I can have whole conversations, entire ideas, skipping entire paragraphs. We, just, we can speak more in a nod than with words at times. Between Josiah and I exists a language by which we can communicate without the need of words, not encumbered by words and at times remarkably empowered by words. And I mention all this because words have been on my mind lately. And in the texts before this passage, words were on my mind. Words, language, the very art of communication enthralls me and enrages me. Because words can convey meaning, and they can powerfully do that. It is through words we communicate who we are, what we believe. Words, in a sense, even capture who we are. Our name is nothing but a word 
designated to us. And yet words aren't enough in and of themselves. They don't stand alone with the fullness of power and communication in and of themselves. Consider this. These three words, which are far too often quoted, the words, I love you, they can carry nearly infinite weight or almost nothing. How would you understand these words from a spouse, from a stranger, from an enemy? From a spouse, they carry with them themes of promise and encouragement, of reminder and commitment. From a stranger, they're just creepy. From an enemy, there's something mocking and unnerving about them. Think about how an honest man and a liar might speak to you. Both would say the same thing. They would say claims like, I'm speaking the truth. I give you my word. I don't tell a lie. How would you tell the difference between the words of two people? Which would you trust? I want to bring that forward today because communication is in both words but also who those words come from. Words are intimately intertwined with familiarity. In fact, words to their fullness cannot be understood without familiarity. So why does any of this matter? Well, I think it matters today in the context of our text, because our text cannot be separated from the passages which came before. You know what I loved about looking into this text is actually the things which came before set a framework by which we understand it. Interestingly, the Gospels have these narratives, and every now and then they touch down on specific moments, specific actions which are important. The last time we actually saw this was John chapter 7. I don't know if you guys remember that far back. But John chapter 7, the gospel of John gave us this clue. It said, now at that time, the feast of booths was at hand. That's September. That's September when that happens. And so then from John 7 to 8 and to 9, we have this theme of specific dialogues, specific conversations, singular one-off events with Jesus and Pharisees. And that's super cool. We see as uh, chapter 9 talks about, as Jesus was leaving the temple, a specific moment happens. He sees a blind man. And we have the miracle in John chapter 9. But John chapter 10 is unique and different, although it is attached to these previous chapters. It's unique and different because it doesn't have a real set point. Even this teaching starts out odd. It doesn't have a context. Truly, truly, I say to you. What I think is important, and it's super cool too, because verse 21, which ends our text today, has a reflection back to chapter 9. It says, can a Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The people are reflecting on what has happened. And yet, verse 22, which is the verse which immediately follows our text today, 
says at that time the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. So what you see here is three months have taken place over the start of John 7 to our text today. Now, three months is not a very long time, but it is a portion of time. And when we read John 10, that it's not grounded in a specific time, sets this tone of this is what Jesus has been teaching. In fact, there's three teachings in our text today. This is what Jesus would be teaching over the course of time, sort of like we're teaching the gospel of John over the course of weeks. And if we see this, we can start to see already a foundation of familiarity that is present between Jesus and the very people he's speaking to. And it adds weight to understand what is being taught here, because what is being taught here is built off of a foundation of familiarity. Look at our text today, verse 3. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And verse 5. They will flee from strangers, for they do not know the voice of strangers. The teaching here shows how sheep, even with so little understanding, know far more than what they can articulate with words. And they know it through familiarity. I love this because as a, as a pastor and as a teacher, as a teaching in and of itself, it gives comfort. And I actually can read it with a sense of humor because all this, although the sheep know, know the voice of Jesus, verse 6 tells us, this figure of speech Jesus used with them but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Who is the they that didn't understand? Honestly, it's both the sheep that follow and the sheep that don't. It's the Pharisees and the false teachers and the thieves who don't believe who aren't Jesus's, but it's also Jesus's. If we skip ahead to verses 19 and 21, we can see that among the Jews, a separation, a division begins because of these words. And that there are those who say, this is a demon-possessed man who is insane, and why are we listening to him? But others say, this is not a man who is possessed by demons. The miracles and the actions he do does, they're not of a demon-possessed man. What's interesting is the others who, who stand up for Jesus don't really seem to understand who Jesus is. They really only understand who Jesus isn't. They have the understanding of sheep who know who to flee from, but they don't know why. It's interesting, I had lunch with Pastor Patrick earlier this week, and we talked about youth and new members. We talked about the profession of faith class. We talked about creeds and confessions and doctrines. Yeah, pastors talk about boring things. But one of the things he noted is that a lot of Christians will be able to tell you when something isn't true far earlier than they can tell you why 
it isn't true. In a day full of false teachings and false teachers, it's a good skill to have. To know when something is wrong, even when you don't know why. A lot of us have this ability when it comes to teachings. We know when something's not right, even when we're not sure why. Interestingly, I tested a congregant earlier this week. I asked him a question on sexual morality. It's a trick question. And his initial response was, that's gross. And he was right. But I had asked him, is it right or wrong? And it took him a lot longer to, to discern. The fact is, we have a lot of teachings out in the world trying to tell us wrong truths. Strangers calling us in winsome words. But a stranger, even though they use words which sound familiar, can never mimic the same tone and voice which is ours from the gospel, which is ours from the one shepherd, which is ours through Jesus and his Holy Spirit. A lot of us don't realize just how much the Holy Spirit is guiding us moment by moment and day by day. See, I talked to you about how we often know what's wrong even before we know why it's wrong. We often know what's good even before it's good. We know why it's good. Consider this question. How many of you know why you came to church this morning? Many of us really think about it. The depth of our reflection is that we come because it's Sunday. But most of us don't believe that in a legalistic sense. The reality is, You came because you were called. The Holy Spirit, from the moment you woke up, was wooing you here, was calling you here. And we recognized that earlier this morning. I don't know if you guys realize this, but every Sunday, a pastor, Pastor Patrick, this morning, began with a call to worship. Do we think that call to worship started with Patrick? Pastor Patrick? No. The voice of God The God we know calls us to worship and we follow even though we have zero theological reflection on why he might call us to worship. And there are a lot of theological deep and and important reasons why we come together on Sunday. We need to be fed, but often we don't come thinking we're hungry. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow, for they know his voice. The sheep follow, for they know his voice. As a becoming pastor, I love this truth. I love that many Christians know the voice of Jesus. It gave me comfort as I came here as an intern preacher. Because although I don't have the familiarity of Pastor Patrick or Pastor Dave's 17 years of knowing you, when I preach, I know that the same gospel I preach is familiar to you. Many Christians follow Jesus through the familiarity of his voice and the familiarity of the sound of his gospel 
and they know they can trust Jesus even though they do not understand all that is taught, that all that he is to them. They know, as the Jews show in verse 21, they know that Jesus is not a demon-possessed man, but they do not understand all that he is. The truth is, many of us really don't understand anything more than a surface level of our And that's okay, because the text here today shows us that familiarity with the voice is the only thing that's needed as a Christian. A sheep's understanding, a sheep's faith is all you need. But that's not where it has to end. That's the starting point. So in one sense, it's okay. But in no way does this capture all which Paul prays for us in Ephesians. That according to the riches of God's glory, God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have this. Hear these words. This is what it could be. May have the strength to comprehend with all the saints is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. That is not a sheep's understanding. That is not the familiarity with his voice. That is so much more. That we may know the fullness of God. Not just recognize his voice and his calling. But the fullness of him. Brothers and sisters, I actually hope to shake the way you look at this passage. And maybe change it forever. That you may never look at it again because this claim that Jesus makes of the good shepherd is perhaps the least of all his claims. It's the most condescending one he could make concerning himself. And when I say condescending, I mean simplifying. It's the most simplifying statement the God of the universe could make about himself. I am the good shepherd. All the other I I am statements have something of a mystical paradox in them. I am the bread of the life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of these, in some sense, are miraculous because people are not those things. If someone told me, I am the door, I'd say you're crazy. And if I found out that was true, I would be baffled. But people are shepherds all the time. To say that I am a shepherd is like a surgeon saying, because I know how to sterilize my hands, I'm a pretty good dishwasher. Or a master chef saying, I know how to make mac and cheese or peanut butter and jelly or frozen pizzas, the foundation of my diet. Or it's like a mother saying, I can handle laundry, dinner, the kids, and a job. To step down to something simpler is nothing remarkable. (laughs) There is nothing remarkable about stepping down to something simpler. 
And so when the man who has claimed to be and know remarkable things, the man who claims that if you abide in his words, you will never see death, when that man claims something simple, it's not remarkable. What is amazing is that the man who is remarkable, the God, the amazing person who condescends to perhaps the lowest comparable thing, that of a shepherd, he's still incomprehensible. That some still didn't understand who he is. And what's also amazing is that when the God of the universe condescends down to a shepherd, look at what happens to God's most great and glorious creation. The very creation which God made fearfully and wonderfully. When God condescends, when he simplifies who he is, and he simplifies who we are, God's greatest creation which he knit in the womb, which he made in his image, with all the magnificence of who we are as men and women, we become sheep. Unreasoning, simple, and somewhat stupid animals. All the wonder which is in man and woman becomes a sheep which is defenseless and incapable of surviving on its own. And still, the sheep cannot understand who this God is. It's interesting, when I think of this, how... The Bible, how the scripture humbles us as men and women, as God's greatest creation. We often think way too highly of ourselves. Think of Karl Marx. He said, religion is the opiate of the masses. He said this in a sense to dismiss both religion and to dismiss people. These days, it's not uncommon to hear this insult, to, say, to hear someone say, don't be sheeple which is to say, think for yourselves. And that's somewhat we see here in Scripture. We see that the Bible says, ultimately, for all our magnificence, in sin, it's all lost, that we are unreasoning creatures. And he says this of both the sheep that follow Jesus And the sheep that don't all become sheep in our text today. When God becomes the shepherd, all are sheep. And yet, there is a difference because some sheep have a shepherd and some do not. And the fate of those who do not is to be snatched and scattered. I have focused a lot on us today, but I want to focus on one more thing which is magnificent and empowering about Jesus, what shows us about Jesus. Because in the simple illustration of a shepherd, I think the heart of God is shown. We see not only how he cares and how he has interwoven himself with us in the analogy of a shepherd and its sheep, as a shepherd always must have sheep or he is not a shepherd, but we see how he cares. And so I'm going to go through a couple of the verses and then touch on one significant one. Verse 3, 
He calls his own sheep by name. Jesus knows you. You are not a number to him. You are a name, a person. Verse 10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He wants you to prosper. His whole heart rejoices when you do well, when things are good. Verse 14, I know my own and my own know me. Jesus hides nothing from you if you wish to know him. The relationship he offers is relationship to the fullest. You may follow his voice, but his words, his teaching, his thoughts, his ways, who he is, is available to you far more than just a voice. And verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. This one I think, take, this one I think takes more time to explain how it shows how God cares for us. So I want to expand on it because Jesus mentions this particular one several times. I am, in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up. It seems odd that a good and a great shepherd would lay down his life. We want to think that the strongest of shepherds would be able to conquer any foe, any wolf which came that they could crush it with a blow. And so when we read this passage, we seem to think that, that Jesus, as a shepherd of his flock, when he faces evil, he lays down his life in some sort of, of weakness or inability. Couldn't a greater shepherd, when faced with a foe, crush it? And I think the clue to understanding this, this laying down of the life, can be seen in verse 4. In verse 4, it says, When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. The leadership of God always goes before. We, his sheep, follow, and this is all the case. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And so when Jesus leads, he is the first to face every trial, every suffering, every danger which might face the sheep. But in this illustration, when man becomes sheep, we forget something that is core to man, is that we are not innocent. And when we think of sheep, we think of sheep with a sense of innocence because we do not hold them guilty. Sheep do not err. But man does. Man sins. And the wages of sin is death. And so two weeks ago when I mentioned in our text, Jesus said, whoever abides in my words will not see death. I think that ties back into, and we see it in this leadership right now. The fact is, 
Each of us is dying. Every day we come closer to death. And here in our text today, the good shepherd shows that he is the first to die. And you might ask, there are others who have died before. But do you not remember the words of the Jews two weeks ago? They said Abraham died and the prophets died. The truth is, Jesus was the first man who faced death in its totality. On the cross, he paid for all sins. We are dying because someday we will face the ultimate judgment for all our sins. In the Apostles' Creed, when we recite that, there's this one strange line. It says, he descended into hell. The truth is, Jesus is the only one who has truly faced the wrath of God for sins, for our sins. And so out of that, out of that leadership, he has taken the danger which was ours. And he was the first to lead into it, and he is now the first to lead out of it, into new life. Which is what I think this text shows so wonderfully. Why I say faith in Jesus to be a Christian only requires the faith of a sheep, only the understanding of a sheep, the knowledge of familiarity with Jesus. And yet, so much more is offered. Because in John 17, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. Even in our text today, Jesus offers the opportunity to know him, to know the Father through him. That you might have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and to be filled with the fullness of God. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come together as the sheep of your fold, as those whom you have called by name. Lord, you tell us that we are no longer servants, but that we are now friends and sons and heirs. And that, Father, you have appointed us to go forth and to bear fruit and to glorify your name. Lord, I pray that the seed of faith which you have given us, that seed as faith, as the faith of sheep, that it would grow into the fullness of discipleship, the fullness of a disciple and a son of God. And Lord, I pray this with the expectation that through the power of your Holy Spirit, this promise will become more and more a truth to us, that we live as new creations, as sons and daughters of God. In Jesus' name.